Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 11 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 236-235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative development in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. And last but not least, Radio in Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center functions at the nexus of natural science, engineering, the social sciences, and humanities. It includes multiple disciplines, stakeholders, and publics in collaborative research, education, and engagement. It generates knowledge and fosters balanced and inclusive dialogue regarding emerging genetic engineering technologies and products. The GES Center is working to better understand the technical, ethical, and societal dimensions of genetic engineering in order to address the needs of society. For more information, visit the GES Center website go.ncsu.edu slash ges. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Well, it seems like every few years there's a new scare related to a potential epidemic of an emerging infectious disease. Everyone will no doubt remember the recent Ebola epidemic that took thousands of lives in Africa and threatened the whole world. But other major epidemic scares in recent years have involved a particular class of infectious agents called coronaviruses, including SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. SARS and MERS and the other coronaviruses are highly contagious and in some cases can be fatal. 
So far, there are no approved therapies to treat any kind of coronavirus infection. My guests on Radio in Viva this week are part of a team of researchers developing a promising new drug to prevent or treat coronavirus infections. They recently published an important new paper describing their studies, and we are going to hear all about that and the hope that at some point in the near future, there will be an effective therapy to combat coronaviruses. Dr. Tim Sheehan is a research assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health. He earned his Ph.D. in microbiology and immunology at UNC in 2008 and received a B.S. in microbiology and water resource management at the University of New Hampshire in 1999. He was a postdoc in the laboratory of Dr. Charles Rice at the Rockefeller University studying the hepatitis C virus, which followed a postdoc in the laboratory of Dr. Ralph Barrick at UNC. He also spent a year learning antiviral drug development at GlaxoSmithKline. He's been on the UNC faculty since 2015. Dr. Amy Sims is a research associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Gillings. She earned her Ph.D. in microbiology and immunology from Vanderbilt University in 2001 after receiving her B.S. in molecular biology from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in 1995. She also did a postdoc in Dr. Barrick's lab at UNC. Tim and Amy, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thank you. Thanks, Ernie. Uh, this project you've been working on related to the coronaviruses is really exciting, particularly this publication in Science Translational Medicine that gives the details about this new antiviral drug called, for now, uh, GS5734. Would you give us a broad overview of the study, uh, e either one of you? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, GS5734 is a drug um, that was um, created by the company called Gilead. Mm -hmm. Gilead Where Sciences, located? Uh, located in California. Okay. Um, and they are, I guess, I would say a leader in antiviral drug development and now have um, multiple drugs on the market capable of curing hepatitis C virus. And so I think they... Um, they really made a name for themselves for being able to do that. Um, and I think some, some drugs that um, maybe didn't work so well against hepatitis C, they discovered they worked against other viruses that they didn't really expect. And so one of them being Ebola virus. So the drug that we've been working on um, really first and foremost is being developed as an Ebola drug. Right. Um, looking at Gilead's website, that seemed to be the most material they yeah, had on there about right, this particular drug. Right. And um, so they um, they discovered, along with some other academic uh, collaborators, that their that this drug could work against Ebola in cells and culture and stop it from replicating, and also could stop um, Ebola virus disease in a monkey that had already gotten the virus. So if you gave the drug after the monkey had been infected and was sick, it could stop that monkey from developing hemorrhagic fever and dying. Um, and unfortunately, uh, or maybe fortunately, the, uh, the Ebola 
epidemic in West Africa really had come under control before they were able to really test this drug in clinical trial. Um, so now they are um, still trying to uh, figure out if this drug would work against Ebola virus in people. Um, and right now they're looking at men who still have Ebola virus in, uh, I guess they're shedding virus in their semen. And so they're kind of chronically infected um, in a way, but they don't appear to be sick. Okay. And they're trying to see if they give this drug, if they can eradicate that reservoir. Um, because um, they're really, without an ongoing epidemic, there's really no way to see if this is going to be efficacious in a person with Ebola. There, there have been some further outbreaks in, in Africa just recently. Though, yeah. they, are, they, are they working um, the, I, where, where the action is? So to yeah, speak? I don't know if... Um, like the um, if they're going to be bringing vaccines to those sorts of situations or drugs, um, but I'm sure that when that happened, they were excited to see if they could you know help out. Sure. So, where how did this lead to the potential application of this drug in the in uh, coronavirus? Right. So um, some of that early work, along with showing um, results that this drug could. Um, inhibit Ebola virus, they saw that it could work against some coronavirus as well. And I think the first one was, did they look at SARS? I think they first? may have looked at SARS. I mean, basically there's like a lab that works kind of like a clearing house. So they get a drug and they can actually work with five, six, seven different types of viruses. So in the initial publication was a table where they had checked off three or four different types of major <coughs> virus classifications that they had mm -hmm. tested. And okay. um, coronas happened to be one of those. I see. Very good. So um, since then, uh, that that line of research has been pursued uh, a lot by you folks. Uh, tell us a, some about um, about some of the results, uh, both uh, cell-based and in, in uh, rodents. Um, so basically, one of the things that our lab um, has been very lucky to be able to work with um, is an in vitro model of the human lung. Um, which is basically, um, we have collaborators who work in a core facility that isolate uh, primary human lung airway epithelial cells. Mm -hmm. They can isolate those cells um, from tissue that's not needed for um, transplants. Um, basically set these up on little trans wells, membranes, um, and allow the cells to mature over about a six to eight week period. And what winds up happening is that these cells form uh, the epithelium, basically exactly like what would you would see inside the lung. They're, they're doing their um, thing. They are doing their <laughs> thing and they're really awesome. Um, they're fantastic cultures. The, um, the cells on the top, the ciliated cells, wind up uh, doing such a high rate of, air, of oxygen exchange that you can't keep media on the top of them. So they actually have a basement membrane that sets up and all the media is on the bottom of the cultures. Um, and the tops, you actually don't have anything on top of them, which is not typical if you're used to doing t tissue culture work in vitro. Sure. Um, so there's an air-liquid interface, um, which is really cool. The, they set up true cilia that beat. They can actually beat in like a coordinated hurricane-type fashion. There have been studies where you can put beads on top of them and watch them move around. You can see the cilia literally beat in the microscope, which is fantastic. So they're like little lungs. They really are. At least from the epithelial standpoint, yes, they are truly like little lungs. And okay. we've been very, very lucky to have a long-standing collaboration with the group at UNC that takes care of these cells, um, St Scott Randall's facility. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been working with them for a really long time and um, done a lot of studies with the uh, highly pathogenic human coronaviruses and looking at these cultures. Um, but what this gives us is something that's um, a little bit closer to a human or even an animal model. Um, 
using these culture systems. And so drug companies are actually very interested in being able to test their drugs um, in this epithelial type of model as opposed to just using traditional cell culture models, which have you know fantastic um, perspectives and things that you can do with them. But it does actually, it's really nice to be able to take them into these H, what we call HAE cultures mm-hmm. or human airway epithelial cell cultures. Okay. Um, so we are part of a larger um, collaborative group that has um, basically been tasked with uh, testing all different kinds of antivirals trying to find things that work against a large different, a large number of different viruses with our group obviously focusing on coronaviruses. Um, and Gilead is part of that team, and that's how we were given access to these particular compounds. Um, and so we started the testing um, basically using our airway epithelial cell model, and we could show really nice um, effective concentrations or infectious concentration, EC50 values, um, and really low cytotoxicity, low to none, basically at any concentration that we tested. So um, the drugs were able to stop the virus from replicating nicely in the cultures um, and with little to no cytotoxicity. So this seemed like a very promising candidate to be able to take into animal models. Uh, which, which you proceeded to do, Which right? we proceeded to do, and that's, um, that's definitely Tim's specialty, so. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think this research enterprise had already been established before I came back to UNC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess some work had already been done at Vanderbilt in Mark Dennison's group um, with a model coronavirus called mouse hepatitis virus, um, which you can use in a regular biosafety level two laboratory. Um, I don't know if it's a good idea good place here to talk about different biosafety levels absolutely right? sure so like uh, that was going to be a question for <coughs> you because sure, i sure. know that you you have to do yeah uh, uh, take great precautions right. right so depending on i guess the um, the pathogen and the thing that you're working on it requires you to work under certain conditions so like uh, a virus that gives mice hepatitis and does not cause infection or make people sick is something you can work at biosafety level too. So that just means you're wearing like a lab coat and gloves and eye protection, mm-hmm. and you're doing your work in uh, a biological safety cabinet, which is essentially a big metal box that um, gives you a sterile environment within which to work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what else would be a biosafety level two? Like so they're actually, um, so Tim gave an excellent example of a mouse virus, but it turns out there are actually lots of human viruses and pathogens that you can work with uh, biosafety level two also. Um, NL63 and HKU1 are two human coronaviruses as well as 229E and OC43. Right. And they like and cause um, the common cold. Absolutely. Okay. So okay. they are not as pathogenic. They right. don't make you as sick. Right. Um, I think the major thing that I think about when I talk about biosafety level two and that is, um, a non-immunocompromised individual, regular, an individual with a healthy immune system should be able to fight the infection off without really any issues. Um, that's kind of a guy that you can work with at BSL-2 without, right. you know, we, we take a lot of precautions and we are very safe, sure. but that right. if you have an intact immune system and you're normally a healthy person, that even if you, you know, God forbid, accidentally infected yourself, that this is something that you should be able to right. fight off without issue. And even some other human pathogens like dengue virus, which is caused by a mosquito bite. So um, that's a biosafety level two pathogen. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so, you know, if you were to have an accident with dengue virus, you'd have to essentially jab yourself, <laughs> stick yourself with a needle. Right. You know, right. Or, you know, so, um, so that would be biosafety level two. Um, 
Uh, what about biosafety level three? So bio where you guys yeah, work. so bio <laughs> like all, most all of the work that we do is at biosafety level three. So biosafety level three pathogens typically have um, no vaccine or therapeutic available, and they cause um, severe diseases um, that even a normal healthy person with a competent immune system would get really sick and potentially die. Sure. So. And I mean, we've we've all seen labs that employ those kind of precautions in the movies. And right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like that. So, um, yeah, so biosafety level three, just to walk in the door, you have to have hours and hours of training. I believe our training, it's six months wow. about okay. just to walk in the door. Right. You have to be competent handling viruses and doing virology at biosafety level two before you can go in the door. Um and you wear uh, your the what you wear is way different in biosafety level three than biosafety level two so we wear a full like tyvek space suit mm -hmm. so we're covered head to toe um in um a white suit and then we wear a powered air purifying respirator around our waist so basically there's a motor with a battery and it um it pumps sterile safe air for us to breathe into a hood that we wear um, so yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's a space suit, but not like the ones you'd see at biosafety not level four, like, like in the, an Ebola the plastic, lab. Right. The I plastic see, ones that, that you zip yeah. into, that's yeah. not quite us. They're actually, yeah. I see people, um, sometimes if there's a crime scene on television that there's, that they're a little questionable about, you actually see people in the Tyvek and the Papper as opposed to the big giant zip suit. So right. the people mm -hmm. actually on television are wearing them. I don't know how they're talking in them into the <laughs> microphones. Right. I find it challenging and amusing that, you know, yeah. it is not the easiest way to communicate. That's yeah. for sure. But I, I, I like it, um, especially in the summertime, because, you know, you basically have cool <laughs> air being blown on your head True. the whole time that you're in the lab. So it's almost like uh, wearing air conditioning, an air conditioned suit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now, the one time I ever had to dress up like that was for uh, a piece uh, that we were doing about chemical Okay. Contamination. Uh, sure. mm -hmm. I'm sure similar uh, mm -hmm. precautions with duct tape around the wrists mm -hmm. and yep. you know the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And I just remember it was in the middle of summertime and sweating, you know, and losing pounds from that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're actually in an air conditioned. Well, you know, the build our lab is inside, and you know there is some temperature fluctuation. It's more or less stable. Mm -hmm. I mean, and depending on how hard you're working, you know, I guess you know you could work up a sweat, but at least your head stays cool there you That's go true. well tell us about the the mouse uh, so yeah aspects. so um so uh in the lab um a few mouse models have been developed and all a mouse model is is um you know it's it's a tool it's a research tool um that is developed uh in order to try and get a feel for how diseases might progress in a person so you know the goal of developing a good mouse model is it has aspects um, that are reminiscent of the human disease. So if, um, so we have a mouse model for SARS. So if you, if these mice, if you give them the virus in their nose, then they get a severe respiratory disease that has a lot of similarities to the one that is, that was seen in a person, though it's a lit, it's a lot more, uh, the timing of the disease is a lot more compressed. So it, it plays out at, in about a week. Okay. And, um, in a person with SARS, it was more like a month. So, but 
you know which is good good for for experimentation right right yeah it's good and bad you know it's faster but at the same time um um you're losing some of the maybe important pieces of information by studying a disease that doesn't play out in, in exactly the same time frame as it does in a person. Mm-hmm. Some of the so windows are so short that it, it makes it really challenging for us to be able to tease apart, you right. know, how mm-hmm. late into infection can right. we give the drug because it's so fast in the mouse, right. you know, yeah. mm-hmm. it's almost like us being on a 24 hour time clock and that gets really challenging, especially with the right. gear that we have to put on and things like that. Right. So. Sure. So, yeah. So in the, in the context of developing drugs against the disease, you know, um, you give a mouse SARS and you either give the drug before or after the infection. So if you give it before, it's called prophylactic treatment. Mm-hmm. In um, the nature of a vaccine at right, that point, Yeah, right? exactly. So, um, so if we gave this drug GS5734 before we gave mice SARS, they basically don't get sick. And how we monitor that and how we can say that is we can look to see if there is virus replicating in the lung. We can also look to see if there's damage to the lung. And we also have a special machine in the lab which allows us to measure respiratory function. So we can see how the mouse is breathing, if they're treated with drug or not, and look at the differences in um, their breathing mechanics, basically. Sure. So um, then you, you give it to them af- after you've... So yeah, if you give it to them after the virus, you can see if you can um, either stop the progression of disease um, or yeah, stop it or slow it or, you know, basically eliminate the progression towards severe disease or death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but like as Amy was saying, um, because the time frame in which SARS plays out in a mouse is really short, seven days, um, the time in which you have to give them drug after they get the virus is short. Sure. Right. Because the virus basically um, goes up and then comes down and the mouse's body is reacting to that and can um, fight off the infection um, and so as it goes up it reaches a peak and so we call that you know the peak titer of virus replication in the lung mm-hmm. and that happens within the first 48 hours so so you the time that you better be on the spot right exactly <laughs> so the time that you have to give the drug after they've been infected is quite short mm-hmm. whereas a person who gets SARS they're, they don't repeat. They don't reach peak repl- replication in their lungs for a week after they are symptomatic. So you could feel crummy with SARS in in MERS too, um, and go to the hospital. And there's a pretty big window for you to get treatment before the virus has actually peaked in your lung, and you know a lot of the damage has occurred. Sure. Yeah. So um, what kind of results did you see in? in so the yeah. So we saw that. Um, in our mouse model that the drug could um, prevent disease from occurring if given before we gave the virus, so prophylactic treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could also uh, provide a benefit if given after. So we could basically stop severe disease from progressing if we gave it a day after the infection was uh, established. I see, and that, yeah. that's, that's big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what did the safety profile look in the, in the mouse studies? So um, we didn't actually look. Um, it's really not our um, expertise okay. to look at safety. But um, because this drug was um, 
put through the ringer by Gilead um, for Ebola. Mm-hmm. So they they did a, a bunch of work in um, animals and mice and monkeys, and they've done studies in people prior, you know, to set up with the FDA um, to give the FDA the information that they need to say yes it's okay to start a clinical trial. Sure, sure. So there was a lot, of, a good track record with the with exactly. this drug already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which must be a, a, a nice luxury. Yes. <laughs> it is, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I would say that, you know, the, the opportunity that we've had with this drug is super rare in academia. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time you're looking at things very early and only in cell culture, probably not even in a mouse. Yeah. Um, because just to identify something that works against the virus is a huge achievement. And then to have that um, be able to to have it be pharmacokinetically um, suitable and drug-like is also super rare. So like lots of times a drug might work in cells and culture, but you go and you give that drug to an animal and it's not soluble or it doesn't go to the right part of their body and like lots of things can happen just because of the the properties of the chemical sure that is sure. your drug many possibilities for failure yeah exactly mm. so yeah i think we we like jumped into this pretty right. late in the, the the development process so this was an excellent way to learn this was really our first foray into serious drug testing and so for the first one to hit like this it's it's really unheard of and we are we've been very very lucky but we're very glad to be a part of this study for sure well it's it's definitely very very exciting which is what what brings you here (laughs) Um, do you think that this drug will be just as effective in coronaviruses that have yet to emerge i know that that we're constantly on the on the lookout for new coronaviruses uh, emerging in uh, third world areas. Uh. Well, to me, that's actually one of the my favorite parts about the study is that um, in the in vitro and the culture models that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. um, that's definitely one of the things that we tried was that um, one of our other claims to fame in our lab is that we've been able to basically generate reverse genetics approaches to um, isolate some bat coronaviruses that are either SARS or MERS-like that can kind of serve as the progenitor strains or possible, um, you know, pre-zoonotic jump strains, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were able to use the culture systems um, that basically recapitulate the epithelium of the human lung um, and do drug testing um, against those different bat coronaviruses that are either SARS or MERS-like, and we were able to show that the drug is actually effective against those bat coronaviruses as well. So it's really exciting that we may truly have a treatment that could treat not only the viruses that we know exist today, but ones that might emerge in the future. Well, that, that's so, great. Which yeah. is fantastic news. So. Yeah, let's hope that that, that proves out. Uh, I understand that there also may be a little bit of concern that use of this drug or another one like it could result in the development of drug-resistant strains, as we've seen with antibiotics. Tell us more about that aspect. Is that on your radar? Yeah, it's definitely on our radar. And um, so our collaborators at Vanderbilt University, um, headed up by Dr. Mark Dennison, have really been spearheading the effort to see um, if it's possible to generate resistance to this drug um, in cells and culture. And so the short answer is yes, it is possible, but it was really hard for them to do that. And um, the 
resistant virus was only slightly resistant. You know, when you when you think about like antibiotic resistance, the antibiotics don't work at all. Yeah. And you know, if you give a person an antibiotic and they have a resistant bug, it doesn't do anything at all, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same for um, uh, some drugs that are no longer efficacious against HIV. You know, they just don't work. Right. And sure. the virus has found a way to get around that completely. So um, the I'm putting it in like air quotes, but the resistant virus that Mark um, identified um, was only about. Uh, I mean, it's hard to really explain it's this over the radio. Right. Uh, it it only like it, it was still susceptible to drug. Right. Okay. Just needed slightly like what maybe twice to three times the amount of drugs. So basically it was still susceptible. You could still knock down replication and relatively easily actually. Right. You just needed a little more drug. But the effective concentration of the drug is in the nanomole range for coronaviruses. So you basically just needed to bump it a little bit. So you're still very yeah. well easily able to treat people or mice or the right. cultures or whatever. And and also like another interesting aspect of this, like oftentimes when a virus um evolves to be resistant to a given drug or something like that um it's all it's often at a at a fitness cost so they might find a way to be resistant to a certain drug or medication but it might they might replicate more slowly because of the changes that they had to undergo to become resistant so that that was the case with the resistant virus that mark had isolated it was not as fit as the parental virus Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and another thing sort of playing in our favor um, is that a lot of the diseases, well, pretty much all the coronavirus diseases that were that may be treated with this medication are all very acute. So, you know, SARS and MERS play out over three to four weeks. And so you'd be giving the medication for a short period of time. And usually it it's not really a. Uh, that type of treatment regimen wouldn't promote the development of resistance like if you're on lifelong antiretrovirals mm-hmm. or if you're mm-hmm. being treated for hepatitis C for months and months and months. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think... So resi- that, that, that's unlikely to be a, yeah, a, exactly. a major stumbling yeah. block then. Right. Well, that, that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, are both of you uh, confident at this point that... GS5734 will eventually go all the way and, <laughs> and reach the clinic? I'd like to say yeah. yes. I mean, we we're, we've we're been actively helping Gilead with the investigation on new drug application, the IND, mm-hmm. um, trying to provide them with as much data as we possibly can. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that should be submitted this year. And so I really think that it's right. it's going to definitely... So, so that they're, they're has prepared the, the real to potential. Absolutely. Take right. it all Absolutely. Away. Right. And that... Mm-hmm. So that's like the first administrative hoop that you need to jump through in order to set up a human clinical trial. Sure. Um, But one complicating factor is that the current MERS cases are in Saudi Arabia. And... That's the Middle East. Right, right. So it's not like... It's not in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think setting up a clinical trial definitely is more complicated in that environment than it would be in... And expensive, Europe sure. or here sure. or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not impossible. And I think, you know, um, Gilead is in is talking to people um, who could potentially help with that. 
Um, but you know, it's, it's a slow process for sure. Absolutely. And, and like I say, a very expensive one, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure, but, uh, certainly a large potential, uh, both in human terms and I'm sure in commercial terms as well. Um, is there any outlook? You say the IND is in, in process at this point. Is there any outlook for when, assuming that that gets accepted and I mean approved, I, when I don't clinical know about trials might start? I don't know that. What I can tell you is that um, the e- for Ebola, this drug is already in phase two. Okay. So okay. that's actually a really good sign that. That's a head I think start. This will actually, absolutely. And so, as Tim had indicated earlier, that um, having following kind of on the coattails of the Ebola virus treatment has been really fantastic for us. It's definitely opened a lot of doors and, and made things easier, I think, than they would have been had we been trying to, to push this as a, as a coronavirus-only drug. So I see. Um, is, is Gilead looking at this uh, as, uh, would they intend to pursue it as preventive or as treatment or, or really both? Probably both. Yeah. I would guess both. And yeah. that, that's kind of a that's kind of unusual, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess. I guess it yeah it depends on the disease the ti- the kind of disease that you're trying to treat. Yeah. So like for a bloodborne pathogen like HIV or HCV, like I guess a preventative treatment, uh, a medication like this, I don't think you'd give as a preventative treatment because. I guess you'd have to just be on it all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, But if there is a, say there's a MERS outbreak and all of a sudden you have cases in a hospital and you have transmission in a hospital, then maybe you would give the nurses and doctors in that, in that context, preventative treatment. Okay. So they don't get sick. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely been, you know, definite demonstrations that especially SARS um, and MERS some too can definitely pass. Um, in hospital settings. So that's something that we would want. And personally, given what we do for a living, I would be thrilled to have a drug on the shelf that, you know, we wear so much precaution and we've taken more precautions than are needed. So I don't anticipate an ever full out exposure event, but Mm -hmm. it would be really fantastic to have on the shelf something that we could start taking immediately. You know, that would be a treatment. So So are, are you, are you tempted? To take it as a preventive? <laughs> like, off the cuff? No. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> In a nifty pill form from the FDA? Maybe. Good answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't sample our drugs <laughs> in the lab for yeah. sure. Uh, what, what are the gaps in the research at this point that still need to be filled prior to initiating human trials? Um, or are you there? We're, we're pretty close. We're really close. I think yeah. we have... Um, Obviously, numbers of replicates, you know, repeating things and mm-hmm. um, as many times as possible um, to provide as much backup data as humanly possible. So basically, we're in the replicate stage. I think we have two or three more experiments that we need to provide for them. Maybe from an more resistance. Standpoint. A few maybe more resistance, more resistance work. But um, yeah, we we've been working well. The the publication that um, you spoke about earlier um, looked at a mouse model for SARS to show that it works against that. We're currently working um, on another paper where we look at its efficacy against MERS and mice. And there's also, there's a, a laboratory in Montana, in Hamilton, Montana, called uh, the Rocky, Rocky Mountain Laboratories. Mountain. And the, it's a biosafety level three, biosafety level four facility that's run by the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
they do Ebola studies in monkeys and all sorts of stuff like that. But also, um, in collaboration with Gilead, they showed that the drug worked against monkeys, or it worked against MERS in monkeys. Mm -hmm. So there's, along with, above and beyond the work that we're doing, I think there's other data that dovetails into what we've been doing that will help propel this forward, I think, fairly soon. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, um, if for some reason, wh whatever it might be, I certainly haven't heard any indication that there might be one, but you never know with these things. I if for some reason GS3754 ends up washing out, okay. uh, are there other coronavirus compounds in the pipeline? Um, not really with us. Not with us. I and I, I think one thing that is unique about this research program is that Gilead is you is is really interested in pushing a coronavirus drug forward, and the market, though, at some point in time in the future, might be large. Like if there's a new coronavirus that emerges, and all of a sudden there's a medicine on the shelf that we know works against MERS, then all of a sudden we can distribute that globally and hopefully save lives. Sure. Um, so, I think there's. Uh, potential market in the future, but the market right now is not big. It's, you know, there's sporadic MERS cases in the Middle East all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not like there are thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who could be treated with this. So um, I think for big or small or medium pharma to uh, run after a drug that works against coronavirus might not be the best business move in the short term. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm surprised, but at the same time elated that Gilead has um, wanted to pursue this because I think it's kind of a rarity, mm -hmm. um, at least um, in industry. Uh, lots of okay. there are academic there are academics who are looking at different drugs that might work against coronavirus, but um, I, right. yeah. Well, the m might the Ebola market be. Right. right. So, so I think one, one, one thing uh, commercially, I think, in the favor of this GS5734 is that it seems to be a pan-viral drug. Mm -hmm. So it works against Ebola. It works against every coronavirus that we've tested. It also works against respiratory syncytial virus, which is a respiratory virus that causes uh, like severe, young, severe lung disease in newborns mm -hmm. and in the elderly. Sure. So that I think there's a probably pretty good market for that. Um, and that there's really there's no treatment really for RSV right now, um, so that would be huge. Um, so I think in Gilead's favor because it could potentially be used for lots of different things. The market mm -hmm. is bigger than if it was just coronavirus. And one I thing see. I'd definitely like to say is that uh, this is my first time working with a large corporate po uh, partner, and they've been really fantastic, very generous. Um, the scientific you know flow of information back and forth has been very open. And we have a fantastic team who helps us. They provide us, you know, any amount of compound that we're interested in, you know, anytime. Um, and so it's been a really fantastic and true scientific collaboration. And, uh, you know, like I said, we feel very lucky to have been part of this. And sure. So it's been great. Well, you, an you anticipated my very next oh, okay. question, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> I'm a good uh, guesser. Uh, because the, this team has been described as a unique public-private partnership, uh, which, the, you know, there are, a lot of public-private partnerships out there, but what makes this one unique? 
I mean, like I said, this is kind of my first foray into it. Probably Tim can answer better because he had some experience on both sides mm -hmm. of the table. Um, but I guess kind of coming in, I wasn't really sure, you know, if I needed more compound, were they willing to send it? You know, is this something that they're going to, you know, kind of keep under wraps? Um, you know, how easily can we exchange data? Um, am I allowed to present the data at a meeting? And I mean, really, that's never been a problem. It's basically like any collaboration I found in academia where you send the abstract and the title and everything and they sign off on it and that kind of stuff. But I mean, otherwise, it's been a really fantastic to me, true scientific collaboration. And like I said, I feel very lucky to have been a part of being able to contribute to this. But I think one, one thing that makes it unique is that um, because of the nature of the work, they, the, the company can't do it because they don't have the ability to. So they don't have a biosafety level three lab. They can't do any of the biosafety level three coronavirology that we can do. So I think we're each bringing something unique to the table. I see. Um, and there isn't potential, well, there isn't any overlap just because they can't do a, a lot of the stuff that we can do. So f we provide them with, a, I think, a pretty unique product that they can't generate themselves. And one of the other things as far as a product goes is that the airway cultures that I've been speaking about, the ones that we get from um, the core facility at UNC run by Dr. Rendell are amazing. Their quality is so high in comparison. That was one of the first studies that I did was taking the exact model system that Gilead is able to purchase and compare it head to head um, with what we were able to get. And it was really astounding how bad <laughs> the purchased <laughs> ones were and how really good the ones from UNC are. So that's nice. another thing that we brought to the table. And I think, I think that was kind of the, when everyone really started paying attention to the fact that, you know, not only could we do the testing in house cause they knew we worked with the viruses and had containment and all the permissions set up, but that we could actually truly bring a really good version of an in vitro model that they just did not have access to. I see. Um, Very the good. Table, so. Uh, so, is this partnership potentially uh, um, a model for for other similar projects? Do you see uh, other things like this in the future, whether it's at here at UNC or or elsewhere? I mean, I, I hope so. I think that we have demonstrated that you know we have a certain process in place that you know anyone who has an an, an antiviral that they want tested against coronavirus we can thoroughly vet that with all of the systems that we have in place. Mm -hmm. So um, I hope that... Are other companies working on in this in this area? Um, not with us. To your knowledge? Not that I know of, but, but I mean, there have been several other compounds that have kind of appeared and asked, and we've done testing on a few other things right. just to sort of see how it goes, but yeah. Now the, the epithelial uh, cell models that mm -hmm. you, you've described, which is, is a very interesting development. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see those being useful in a wide variety mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of applications. Sure. Uh, there are a large number of people who study them, um, and actually UNC is kind of a clearinghouse. People come from all over the U.S. and even the world. Honestly, we've had collaborators come in mm -hmm. and train with them for a week um, to learn how to set the cultures up and to make them themselves. Now, so. Did that program emerge at all from the, the uh, world-class cystic fibrosis work? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It is the cystic fibrosis center. Yeah. Yep. I see. Absolutely. Okay, very yep. good. Well, that, that's nope, neat. They're we'll, amazing, for sure. We'll have to get them on the show to talk, <laughs> talk more about that. I will talk to Dr. Rando myself. Please do. <laughs> well, um, 
tell us a little bit more about these coronaviruses. You know, I think people have probably heard of them by now. You know, when SARS and MERS, you know, were emerging and, you know, there were fears of a, a pandemic. Uh, you know, we all heard, heard about all that. Um, but, but why are they of such high public health concern? Do you want to take it or do you want me to take it? Go ahead. (laughs) Sorry, I don't have these questions. I'm more directed. (laughs) Um, Well, I think so. Coronaviruses exist um, in wild animals and birds. Well, mammals and birds um, pretty much all over the world. So they're found in domesticated animals like cats and dogs and chickens and cows. Yeah, I've heard that you're not really supposed to hug your chicken. Don't hug the chicken. No Um, kissing the chicken. Yeah, that might be for flu, but... uh, um, That's true. Don't kiss the chicken for lots of different reasons. um, But they're also found in lots of different bat species all over the world. So bats in the United States have coronavirus in them. Bats in China have coronavirus in them. And um, I think one thing that makes coronavirus kind of unique is that they're really good at jumping from one species to another. And there's lots of examples in the distant and recent past of this. So SARS coronavirus, which ultimately became a human pathogen, um, evolved to infect humans from a virus that was found in bats. And it came through uh, an intermediate host which is kind of just like an incubator, I guess, um, which is a civet cat, which is kind of like a... Um, it's kind of like a weasel Kind of ferret. like a weaselly looking ferrety thing that is found in Southeast Asia. Um, and so MERS did the same thing where it went from a bat and now it, it seems to be causing chronic infections in camels in the Middle East. And people who have close contact with camels end up getting this respiratory disease, which is called MERS. And one of the things about the incubators is that usually they don't get sick. So the virus can basically just replicate unchecked because it's not making the animal sick. And I think Mm -hmm. that's definitely true in the bats is that, um, and viruses are not very good about making pristine copies of themselves. They make lots of errors. And so that's how the jumping we think occurs is that these errors get introduced and it can change the the viral protein that it uses to get inside the cell. So So it's similar in a way to, to malaria or dengue in that the the animals that are transmitting the infection are not affected themselves. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, you know, I I mentioned in the intro that these diseases can sometimes be fatal. Are are they, uh, you know, once you you get one of these, uh, are you pretty sick? Depends on which one. For now, at least, until this drug comes out. Yeah, I think it depends on lots of things. um, what you get infected with and how old you are. So at least for SARS, about 8,000 people worldwide got infected and the mortality rate was about 10%. So about 800 of those people died. Mm-hmm. Um, but a majority of the people who ended up dying from SARS coronavirus infection were over the age of 50. So it seemed like if you were old, you er. were, <laughs> if you were older, <laughs> as I approach it, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not ancient, just right, older. Exactly. Right. If you were older, I've than got that <laughs> long in the rear view <laughs> mirror, right. so right. it's making me feel right. really good. Here. Right. If you were sorry about that, um, yeah, that <laughs> Tim was. Tim is nice and young still. Come oh on. yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so I- increasing age was associated with increased pathogenesis or severe disease. 
Um, now, is that immune related? Um, probably likely due to, yeah, as you get older, your immune system becomes less good at doing its job. And so mm -hmm. um, uh, that probably played a role in that, too. Um, but for MERS, um, there probably haven't been enough cases really to nail down that aging aspect to disease. But a lot of the people who get, who get MERS and end up at the hospital, a lot of them are diabetic or overweight. And so there are comorbidities that are associated with more severe disease. And it's potentially underestimating the number of cases that are actually out there because a healthy adult might get infected with MERS and might be able to give it to another person, who knows, but they don't appear to be sick. Mm -hmm. or, or maybe just mildly sick. Right, exactly. So they might think they have a cold seek or something. Seek attention. Like. Yeah. Yep. I see. Mm -hmm. Well, do, do you guys have any new coronaviruses on your radar screen at this point? Not human ones. Yeah, mostly like... Pig seems to be a hot yeah. coronavirus topic right now. Yeah. The pigs are mostly hosting yeah. right now. Or oh. bat. I mean, one of the things that I think our lab is, is good at doing is um, reconstructing bat coronaviruses. So, um, you know, now with technology, someone in China could um, sequence the genome of a bat coronavirus and it becomes publicly available. We can take that sequence and basically build that virus from a sequence on paper mm -hmm. um, in the lab and really? then study yep. it. So yeah, so you don't have to be, you don't have to pretty you amazing. Know, ask someone, hey, can you, if you have this virus, can you send it to us? You can just basically reconstruct it from right. the sequence alone in the laboratory. Wow. Um, so and yes. That, that's, yeah. that's new. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting. You are listening to Radio in Vivo, and my guests today are Tim Sheehan and Amy Sims from the UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health. Well, Tim and Amy, I'd, I'd like to widen our focus a little bit at this point. Uh, first, I'd like uh, both of you, and either one of you can go first, to describe uh, what brought you to where you are today in terms of your research interests and careers. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> so, kind of like a winding trail. Um, <laughs> I've always liked biology. It's like, there's, there's no, like, set path. There's just many, many turns and twists. Sure. Um, I think for me, uh, I knew I'd always love biology. Drove my mom crazy. You know, poor mother. Um, but I didn't really have a direction of where I wanted to go. And in undergrad, um, I actually had the ability to do work study, which means I could, you know, work on the government's time in different places. And so I was encouraged in my sophomore year to try to do something more lab or medicine related. And I wound up in a really fantastic research laboratory where I worked for three years um, and fell in love with actually just doing science and um, the day-to-day -day laboratory work was fantastic. Um, that led me to graduate school. And I actually trained with Mark Dennison, who's still our active collaborator. So he was my PhD mentor. I see. Um, and so I trained with him and wound up in the Durham area. Um, and after about two years of being here, I needed to change postdocs and wound up working with Ralph. And so I joined his lab to work with the infectious clone system, which is the reverse genetics platform that I was talking about. He had just developed it for mouse hepatitis virus. Um, and the work that I couldn't do in graduate school because we didn't have the means, we finally could. So I joined Ralph's lab about six months before SARS was identified. Mm -hmm. And 
And so that's kind of been a roller coaster ever since. So you took a lab that was used to working with a mouse pathogen and we had one other pig pathogen in the lab at the time. And basically um, I helped get it to the point where we were working with, you know, highly pathogenic human coronaviruses, establishing the labs, the containment, the standard operating procedures. Um, and so just kind of taking it from there. So it's been a little crazy. Um, you know, human coronaviruses, really people didn't look at them prior to 2003 because they caused the common cold. They were kind of a pain to work with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, SARS really changed everything in a way that people started paying attention to coronaviruses in a way they never did before because they weren't, you know, they caused the common cold and people were just like, whatever. But, um, <laughs> but that's how I've been here for 15 years is that, you know, we're just kind of building on a platform and, and you know, establishing it. And I do love the day-to-day -day work, so it's fun. Yeah, that's uh, very neat. A good, good telling of your story. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and leads me to one di digressive question. All right. When are you guys going to cure the common cold? <laughs> <laughs> Probably know? never. Next week. <laughs> next Thursday. Okay. Tim's got that on his calendar next uh, week. I'll, I'll be buying stock. Okay. <laughs> Tim, uh, tell us a little bit about so I, I gave your background. Yeah. What um, brought you here? I, I went to the undergrad at the University of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And I was drawn to that school because of their natural resources department. Mm -hmm. And I was really into environmental science um, uh, in high school, so this seemed like a perfect fit for me. And so I ended up declaring m oh, the major of water resources management, which um, you know most people who g who um, get degrees in that end up you know running wastewater treatment plants and stuff like that. Um, but w uh, they make you take a microbiology class as part of this major. And so I took microbiology and I just fell in love with it and I declared microbiology as a second major as a junior and basically took microbiology classes for the rest of my undergrad career. Um, but also as an undergrad, I was in like a punk rock band and cool. thought, um, <laughs> and I always thought that I'd be a professional musician. So after undergrad, I moved to Boston and I tried to make it big playing pe music that people didn't like, <laughs> which was a dumb uh, <laughs> business model, I guess. Um, but um, that's called sowing your wild oats. <laughs> that, that's that's a good thing, right? But so I so I played music at night, and I worked in a, in laboratories at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital um, during that four year break between undergrad and grad school. Um, and it was during that time that I realized that, um, you know, a lot of the, the satisfaction I got from playing, from writing and playing music, I also got from designing experiments and telling people about my science. So um, I came to UNC in 2003 for grad school and ended up joining the lab of Ralph Barrick, um, I guess the year after SARS broke. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. a little bit after when Amy came. Um, so we worked together way back then and now we work together now cool um yeah well you you mentioned uh your music and and i wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh some of the the visual communication that you've you've produced uh, which uh, you know that's kind of in my background so i was very interested in and a general interest in science communication of course um tell us your ideas about communicating science, particularly in a visual format. Yeah, um, man, um, a friend of mine had a video camera when we were like eight, nine, ten years old, and so 
I grew up making mm. silly movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I bought a digital video camera and made a short during that time in between grad school and undergrad. Um, so, like, I've always been interested in making movies and editing movies and stuff like that. Um, and I think uh, it's just it's such a useful tool in describing science and trying to get your information out there to the public and to you know the the I you know I, I, I tell people like I'm trying to make movies for my mom like that my mom would understand and that's sure. my target audience because um, I think we tend to get lost in the complexities of biology and all this jargon and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it makes it really um, unrelatable when you're talking to the average person so um, All, always an issue right yeah so yeah so like and I, I was I've always been interested in you know graphic design and art as well so I try to like merge all of these parts of my lives to try and get the science out well, I, I saw your the, the video abstract that you produced for your paper mm-hmm. uh, about why some people become chronically infected with hepatitis C oh, okay. mm-hmm. uh, and, and others don't. And uh, it was very interesting to see that and, and very well done, I, I Thank should you. add. Um, do you have any plans for any more video communications I, like I that? I think we should do it for every every paper that we put out. We should do something short. You know, because mm-hmm. I know my attention span is short. So, you know, uh, that's why I shot for this. The one about our most recent paper, I wanted it to be under two minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, Good idea. Yeah. Even 30 seconds would be ideal. But yeah. yeah. Well, uh, definitely put me on the mailing list. If Great. You are we'll able <laughs> to accomplish that. Uh, I, I noted that you also composed and performed the music for, <laughs> for that, which was, was pretty neat. Uh, so, a uh, man of many talents here. He is, for sure. Uh, and, uh, Amy, I'm sure you have many talents <laughs> Not as, as many well. as Dr. Sheehan, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> well, Amy and Tim, it's, it's been a fascinating hour, and I wish you the best for continued success in your work to combat coronavirus. Thank you so much for Thank having you. us. Thank you. We appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Thanks for ha- joining me on Radio and Vivo. We have got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo. You can check the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio and Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Now stay tuned for one of the most popular shows on the WCOM schedule, The Courage Cocktail with Leanne McClymont. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.